Um, you know, I have little children, as you know, and uh, when you have little kids, you, you, you read a lot with them. You get to read a lot of books with them, and you get to read books that you haven't read in a long time. And uh, there's this, I've, I've identified this progression of books that we go through in life. And the first book that you're looking for when you're looking for the youngest child is just a book that's safe for them to chew on, right? <laughs> what, is, it, is it chewable? Uh, the second type of book, as they get a little older, you start looking for books that they can look at, right? For, it's picture books. There's, no, there's not even any words. There's picture books. How many of you, you don't have to admit it, but even though you can read, you still would prefer some picture books every now and then. Then uh, you, you get to this next stage of books where Caroline's at in kindergarten where it's random, disconnected sentences. The point is not to have any plot. The point is for them to start learning short words, right? So it's not really any story. It's just random little three-word sentences. Then you start to get into the books where there's maybe just two or three characters, a mommy and a daddy and a baby, and there's a simple plot. Now, Lilia, who's eight, is at the stage now where she's reading things where there are actually more characters. There's, there's quite a few characters. They're mostly flat characters, you know what I mean? They're, 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 not, they're not nuanced, they're not like us. They're, there's good characters, there's bad characters, there's funny characters, there's sad characters, and they pretty much stay to their stereotype. The plot is a little bit better and a little bit more involved, but terribly predictable, right? If you're an adult and you're reading these children's books, you know exactly what's going to happen. Well, eventually, as you get older, you move on to books that have both complicated characters and complicated plots. When I was a teenager in high school, I really enjoyed reading novels by John Grisham and Tom Clancy. I don't know if those names mean anything to you. Even if you don't read, you've probably seen their movies because their novels have been turned into movies. Tom Clancy's novels, here are some of the movies that have resulted from his novels, The Hunt for Red October, uh, Clear and Present Danger, even a newer one about Jack Ryan. The Jack Ryan movies are one of his characters. This is uh, Tom Clancy. And then John Grisham uh, wrote A Time to Kill, uh, The Firm, Runaway Jury, and a bunch of other Books. And what I really began to enjoy about those books was, especially in the Tom Clancy novels, is that the first few chapters, it felt like six or seven different stories taking place that had nothing to do with each other. Seven to eight, disconnected. And I just loved how the author had this ability to take all these different, seemingly disconnected stories of people from all different places in the world. And by the time you were five or six chapters in, it was like, the light bulb started to go off as you started to realize, oh, this person's related to this person and this person's going to know this. It's just this amazing ability that some writers have to take stories and weave them together so that they tell one story. As we're in this series on the gospel, I wonder if any of you have ever tried to read the Old Testament, read stories in the Old Testament, read portions of the Old Testament and wondered to yourself, do these fit in? Do these belong? Like, how do they connect to everything else. Many people avoid reading the Old Testament, actually. The reason they avoid reading the Old Testament is because they don't understand it. It feels disconnected from the New Testament. The New Testament seems more relevant to their lives and easier to understand. And, you know, we love reading about Jesus and his miracles, and we love reading Paul's instructions and how to live in the light of the gospel. But I don't know about you, but have you ever found yourself, you'd rather not read all the details about building the tent of meeting? Or all the details about the construction of the temple. You ever get lost in those? Has that ever edified your spirit? Uh, or maybe reading the laws about ceremonial uncleanliness and how to respond to that. Or, or maybe you've, read, you've been reading the prophets and you come across these weird prophetic acts. You're like, what is that? Hosea being told to marry a prostitute. It's very unusual. And then there's these shocking, unexplainable stories. Like when the prophet Elisha recruits two she-bears out of the forest 
to come murder some mouthy, annoying kids. It's like, what? Like, does this really fit in? I know some of you actually, your interest in the Old Testament is now peaked by what I've just said, but it's, it's just some weird stuff. And so scholars have a term they use to explain that the Bible is actually one connected story, even if we don't always see it. And the term is simply, this is, this is actually a literary term, it's the meta narrative. So meta narrative is, another way of understanding it is one big story. The idea is that within the Bible, there is one big story. There is one theme. There is one thread that runs from the Old Testament through the New Testament. In fact, to really understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. You can't understand one without the other. We have to see how the Old Testament points to Christ. And here's the danger. If we don't read the Old Testament this way, if we don't see that the gospel is found in every story, then we reduce every Old Testament story to simply a morality tale or an allegory. Here's how you should live. Be like this person here. Don't be like this person here. Or this represents this. And we wrongly make imperfect, flawed people into heroes. And we place our trust in them. Or worse, we end up placing our trust in ourselves and our ability to live like them. So it really just becomes like a morality tale of how you should live. But when we start to understand that the Bible is one big story, and the big story of the Bible, we'll see that the gospel is not just the focus of the New Testament, but it's the focus of the Old Testament. The gospel is the point of every story. It's all pointing to Jesus and to his message. And the more we understand this, the more we will move from being unsure of the Old Testament to loving it and to valuing it, because the gospel is found in every story. I want to read to you a passage uh, from Luke chapter 24. We're going to be in Luke 24. It's a little bit lengthier of a passage than I would normally read, but it's a story, so hopefully it'll be interesting as I read it. Luke 24, this story takes place on the same day that Jesus rises from the dead. So this is the Sunday after Jesus was crucified. He's risen from the dead that morning, and we're going to pick up this story. A couple of his disciples have, are, are leaving town. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, and the words will be on the screen for you. It says, That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. So the last person in the world that they expected to show up shows up. Jesus all of a sudden is walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short with sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. (laughs) Of course, he knew. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. So they're telling him about what happened to him. And then they go on and say, Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and that they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body is gone, just as the woman had said. And here's the last three verses. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. He's saying the Old Testament. 
Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The gospel is in every story. In this passage, there's a few things that we should note. First off, I think it's a little funny, the story. You know, they're talking about him and he's right there. You ever have that moment where you're maybe at work, you're complaining about a boss to a group of people? You have a captured audi- captive audience who are maybe you're even imitating something your boss does. And all of a sudden you see all their faces change. And you're like, she's right behind me, isn't she? <laughs> One of those sort of moments where you're talking about somebody. Or maybe you've done this. I've done this. You're te- I've, this is terrible. You're sending a text about someone and you accidentally send it to them. Just, just me? Just me? Careful with that. That's a hard one to back your way out of. This is what's happening here. They're talking about Jesus, and he's right there. They're like, man, you should have been there. You should have seen this. You don't know about this? Basically, they say, like, have you been living under a rock? Like, this is the only thing anybody's been talking about for the last three days. You really don't know this. And, of course, he knew it in ways that none of us would ever know. They also call, when they describe Jesus, it's interesting, because they say, did you notice that they said he was a prophet who does Mighty, wonderful miracles. Now, a prophet is correct. It's correct, but it's inadequate. It actually reveals how they still viewed him at that point. See, it's sort of like me saying, it's like if Michael Jordan was here, and I was going to introduce him to all of you, and I introduced him by saying, he's some guy who played basketball. It's like, is it correct? Yes. Is it inadequate? Terribly, right? And that's what they're doing here. They're they're describing Jesus as best they know how because they don't understand what he's actually done yet for them. They think he's dead, so they just say he was a prophet. The other thing is that, isn't it interesting that they've heard the report that he's alive, but they're still leaving town. They've heard he's alive, he's not dead, but they're still headed home. And it said in the text, there still was sadness written across their face, which means they didn't believe. And we might say, well, how dare they not believe? But That's a pretty big leap, isn't it? To believe that the man you saw crucified is now alive. So they didn't really understand or believe. But the thing in this text that I really want us to notice this morning is the word Messiah. So the disciples use it and Jesus uses it, but they use it very differently. The disciples said, we had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah who would come rescue Israel. But when Jesus talks about the Messiah, he says, don't you know that the Messiah was going to have to suffer to enter into his glory Here's what this means. The Jewish people had no framework for a Messiah who would be killed. No framework for a Messiah who would suffer. In the Old Testament, the prophets would write about a coming king, and they would also write about a suffering servant. Isaiah wrote a lot about a suffering servant, but he also wrote about a coming king. And the Jewish people in this day, they assumed that must be two different people. There's someone who's going to suffer and there's going to be a king, but it can't be the same person. They didn't have a theological framework to allow for that. And so when they expected a Messiah, they did not expect someone who would go to a cross and die the death of a criminal. Well, why? Okay, so how many of you like history? You, you, for whatever reason, you just enjoy history. Okay, you're going to love the next three minutes of this talk. If you hate history, you are about to be bored out of your mind. But I want, I want you to understand why this word Messiah matters so much in this story. So in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you, through your descendants. Abraham has a son of promise named 
Isaac. Isaac has twins, Esau and Jacob, but Jacob gets the blessing of the firstborn, so then it goes to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, remember? And his 11th son's name is Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and ends up in Egypt where he is wrongly accused of a crime, ends up in a jail, but through God's sovereignty is elevated to second in command in the nation of Egypt where he uses his power not to exact revenge on his brothers, but to save them. And in doing so, the people of God move into Egypt and settle in the land called Goshen. Well, eventually that pharaoh dies and another pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know Joseph and is afraid of the amount of people, over a million people now, who have descended from Abraham. So what does the Pharaoh do? He puts them in slavery. And now enter a familiar name, Moses. Moses comes and leads the people out of slavery into the wilderness where they wander and wander. And because of their disobedience, they never enter the promised land under Moses' leadership. He hands the baton to a man named Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land where they begin to fight battles and become a nation. And then there's Joshua who rules, there's Judges who rules, there's Samuel the prophet. And eventually the people of Israel who now are in the multiple millions say, we don't just want prophets and judges, we want to be like the other nations, we want a king. It breaks Samuel's heart, but God says, give them what they want. They get a king. The first king they get is Saul. He's not very good. The second king they get is David. He's a little bit better, but very inconsistent. And then eventually, the third king they get is Solomon. And Solomon leads them into the golden era of their time. They're the wealthiest nation. Their army is phenomenal. But then, because of a lack of obedience to God, the nation splits into two tribes, uh, two nations. The northern nation of ten tribes is called Israel, and the, the southern nation of two tribes is called Judah. Well, eventually, both nations get dragged off into exile because of their disobedience to God. Assyria takes Israel into exile first, and then years later, Babylon comes and takes Judah into exile, okay? And in about 500 B.C., the Judean exiles return from Babylon, and they rebuild the temple under Ezra's leadership. That's a book in the Bible. And they rebuild the wall in the city under Nehemiah's leadership. That's another book in the Bible. They were in exile. Why? Because they repeatedly rejected God's warnings and law. During this time, Babylon falls to Persia. Now, the Persian Empire was the world power and the ruler of Judah until 333 BC, when a man named Alexander the Great rolled in with 100,000 Macedonian warriors and destroyed the Persian Empire. When Alexander the Great did that, it actually flipped the divide of power in the world, or it turned at 90 degrees. Up until then, the divide of power in the world had been between the Mesopotamians in the north and the Egyptians in the south, but he flipped it, and now it was east and west, and the west was winning. The west was the Greeks. The power and the culture of the Greeks is winning. So in this world, the cultures and the religions of the East began to dream of and talk of and write of a king from the East who would eventually conquer the West. To the Persians, it was going to be a Persian king. To the Egyptians, it was going to be a pharaoh. But to the Jews, it was going to be the Messiah. So they looked through the ancient writings and they said, there's a Messiah coming and he's a king and he's going to defeat the Greeks and he's going to defeat eventually the Romans. So Alexander dies 10 years later and the kingdom is divided. There's a bunch of different kings. And about 200 years before Jesus is born, King Antiochus IV, he's ruling over the Jews and he's a terrible king. He's a terrible man. Here's what he's doing. He's selling off the rights of the Jewish high priest status to the highest bidder. 
So anybody can be the high priest of the Jews if they'll pay the most money, even if they're not from the tribe of Levi, which is a terrible offense to the Jewish people. So the conservative, traditional Jewish leaders, they hated this, and they wanted to rebel against it, but he was so powerful. Well, they thought they had the opportunity because they heard he died in a battle against Egypt. And so while they thought he was dead, they tried to rise up against uh, the, 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 the rulers at that time. Well, he had not died. And when he came back, he was pretty angry. And when he came back, here's what he did. He desecrated their temple. He outlawed all the ways that the Jewish people worshipped. He sacrificed pigs in their temple, which to the Jewish people was about the, one of the most insulting things you could do. And he began to kill Jewish people who wouldn't obey his commands. He began to kill Jewish leaders who were obeying Yahweh instead of him. And, and I'm getting to this. This moment in history was a theological watershed for the people of Israel. And here's why. Because in the Old Testament, they believed if you obey, you'll be blessed. You'll be secure and you'll live long lives. If you disobey, you'll be punished and you're exiled. And that's the way the Old Testament pretty much went. And biblical scholars, a guy's name is Mark Turnage, and he wrote a book called Windows into the Bible. He has his MA in all of this stuff, and he's getting his PhD in Israel. He wrote a book, and I was reading it, and he said this. This marks the first time in history that the Jewish people were being punished because of their obedience. As a people, not individuals, but as a people. Every other time up until this point, when the Jewish people were sent into exile, it was because of their disobedience. This is the first time that they're obeying God and they're being killed and they're, and they're being slaughtered. And as faithful Jews began to die for their obedience to God, their theological beliefs were in crisis. They're having a crisis of faith. And Mark Turner said this, and I think it's still true today. Faced with such a crisis, communities and individuals will either lose their faith or they'll redefine it. Faced with such a crisis, communities and individuals will either lose their faith or they'll redefine it. They knew that God was just, so here's what they began to conclude. If there's no justice in this world for us, there must be justice in the next world. This is when they really began to think about the next world. We think about the next world a lot, but the, 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 the before Christ, that was not the way they thought. They didn't think about it the way we think about it, going to heaven someday. It's a totally different framework. Two new beliefs, and I'm finished with this comment on this little talk. Two new beliefs emerged out of this time. Number one, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead wasn't even a big part of their belief until this time. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And number two, the conviction that the death of a righteous person could bring redemption. Now, think about God's plan and how important those two doctrines were to what Jesus was coming to do in just, just over 150 years. So just for the first time, the Jewish people began to really emphasize the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and the belief that the death of someone righteous could actually accomplish something good. Now, this is the world that Jesus enters. They're looking for the Messiah. Now, listen again to what the disciples said. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. Now, of course he had, but not the way they thought. They thought he would be a mighty king who would defeat the Romans and would push out all the Hellenistic culture from the Greeks. But that's not what Jesus came to do. And then Jesus says, wasn't it clearly predicted in the Old Testament that he would have to suffer before entering his glory? Now, you know the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. You ever watch a movie, like there was that movie years ago that came out with Bruce Willis called Sixth Sense, 
And uh, if you haven't seen it, I won't say anything about the ending because it's a great twist. But you watch the whole movie, and then all of a sudden at the end, something gets revealed, and you're like, I need to watch the movie again. <laughs> like, back then it was rewind it. Rewind it. We're, we're, we're watching it again. Because it changed, that twist at the end changed the entire movie. Here's what Jesus is saying. I've changed everything about the Old Testament. Now, it was always there, but you couldn't see it because you didn't know what it was about. It was concealed, but now it's revealed. Go look at the Old Testament again because the gospel is found in every story. Jesus begins to explain the scriptures to him. The only thing they had was the Old Testament. So he opens up the law of Moses. He opens up the prophets, and he begins to teach them about how the Old Testament is all about him. The ESV study Bible notes say this. Jesus explained to them how not only the explicit prophecies about the Messiah but also the historical patterns of God's activity again and again throughout the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus himself. Another way to put it would be this. Jesus was teaching those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Old Testament is all about the gospel. It's all about me. It's all about my life, my death, my resurrection, the kingdom that I've come to inaugurate. God had spoken in various ways over many times, according to Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. But now, through his Son, he is the full image and representation of the Father to reveal the Father to us. The gospel is one big story, and it's part and found in every story. Now, there are different types of threads in the Old Testament. I want to do a quick teaching here on, as you read the Old Testament, how do you see Jesus in the gospel? in the Old Testament. And I want to share this with you as quickly as I can. There are four different types of threads that you can use when you read the Old Testament. And if you're a studier of Scripture, you're going to want to write these four words down because this is going to help you read the Old Testament in such a way that you begin to see that it's all gospels found in every story. And the first word is this. And, uh, you know, I'm using some alliteration to help you remember this. Um, But sometimes the thread is a person. All right? So you read about a person. I actually did this earlier in this message. You might not even have noticed it, but I talked about Joseph. Do you notice how I said Joseph, who was sold into slavery, you know, um, uh, treated poorly by those closest to him, wrongly accused, was raised to the right-hand side of the Pharaoh, and he now used, but then he used his newfound power not to exact revenge on the people who hurt him, but to rescue them. Do you know who that reminds us of? Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who was uh, sold, literally sold by Judas, denied, betrayed, abandoned by his closest followers, wrongly accused, sent into the depths, only Jesus' depth was not prison, it was hell, sent into the depths, restored now to the right-hand side of the Father, where he uses his new power not to destroy those of us who are his enemies, but to reconcile us. See, sometimes it's a person. It's one thing to say, here's how Joseph lived. You should go live this way. It's not untrue. Those are good lessons, but it's not complete. And the complete way to read scripture is to see that the gospel is found in every story. Whenever you see a person in the Old Testament who accomplishes something incredible for God, it's always just a foreshadowing of what Jesus came to do. Right? No, nothing done in the Old Testament saved us. David didn't do anything. Moses didn't do anything. Abraham, Esther, Ruth, nothing they did makes you right with God. So it's all a foreshadowing to what Jesus came to do to make us right with God. Anytime you read about a person in the Old Testament who is sinful and terrible, they are just an example of why we needed Jesus to come. And what's in them is actually in us. We like to distance ourselves from Ahab and Jezebel and pretend that they're people who have nothing in common with us. Well, everything that's in their heart has the ability to be in our, in, in our hearts. That's why we needed Jesus to come. Now, let me just give you a couple quick examples. Just in the book of Genesis alone, here's six. 
Adam shows us the need for someone who will choose obedience in our place because he chose sin in our place. Abel shows us that the shedding of innocent blood doesn't always cry out for justice. Eventually, it will cry out for mercy. Noah shows us someone who is protected amid judgment and wrath, just like we are. Abraham shows us the provision of a sacrifice so that Isaac can live free. Jacob shows us the selfish ambition of human pride. Joseph shows us a suffering prisoner who becomes the chief ruler. The answer to our deepest need is not to see David or Moses or Esther or Ruth as a hero that we should try our hardest to live like, but to see Jesus as the true and better hero who lived the life we could have never lived, died the death we should have died. And this is true of all the prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. They all point to the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. I want you to watch this video. This says it much better than I could. is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Why this, why this matters 
so much is that it changes us from being those who hope in our own ability to be like people in the Old Testament to those who are truly grateful for Jesus. Makes us worshipers as we read. And so it could be a person. Uh, Sometimes it's not a person. Sometimes it's a pattern. Sometimes there's a storyline that's found in the gospel. There's different patterns that are introduced in the Old Testament that show us how God works through uh, the good news of the gospel. One pattern is this, or let me give you a couple quick examples. Um, I've said this before, but God delivers the people of Israel from Egypt, and then he gives them the law, right? He didn't give them the law while they're in bondage and say, start doing these 10 things, and as soon as you do them well enough, I'll get you out of here. It's his grace that pulls them out of bondage. But once they've been rescued and delivered, then he says to them, in the light of what I've done for you, here's how you should live. So that's a gospel pattern. Grace, then the law. Another pattern that I actually referenced when I was doing that long historical talk there was um, God always seems, isn't it odd that God always chooses the unexpected offspring to carry it on? So first off, with Abraham, you have, you have his first son, Ishmael, but then you have this other son, Isaac, and what's so unexpected about that is Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90. Now, 90-year-old woman getting pregnant, that's quite unusual. We, have, we actually have four couples in our church right now who are expecting a baby, and we're so excited about that. None of them are 90. You know, uh, 90 is incredibly unusual. So it's God's miracle. And then, and then uh, Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau should have had the blessing. But through a series of what seemed to be tricks and deceit, Jacob gets it. And then Jacob ends up, the blessing of Jesus' lineage comes through his fourth son, Judah, not through Reuben. And through Joseph comes the path. So it's like there's this pattern in the Old Testament where God doesn't choose who we would choose. That's a gospel pattern. That, that he comes to the, the foolish to confound the wise and the weak to confound the strong. Sometimes it's unexpected heroes. Anytime in the Old Testament you see victory when there should be defeat, that's a gospel pattern. Anytime you see a redemptive story where somebody is redeemed, it's the gospel, exile and return. So sometimes it's a pattern. Sometimes it's a problem. You're reading through the Old Testament and you come across a problem in the text that points to our need for Jesus. It could be a sin problem that Jesus overcame as our substitute. It could be a problem that we know humankind can't overcome on their own. It could be a brokenness in creation that we say, how will this ever be made new? There's this a tension. Sometimes the tension is, how are things going to resolve? Like the tension between law and grace. How is God going to be faithful to people who aren't faithful to him? He said he wouldn't do it. Is he a liar? If you try to resolve that tension before you get to the cross, where God becomes both the just and the justifier... We, we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. Sometimes the tension is the mystery, like I described earlier, of the Lord and the suffering servant being one person. So sometimes the thread is a problem. And then lastly, sometimes the thread in the Old Testament is a promise. Look for a promise when you're reading the Old Testament that is, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Sometimes the promise will reveal something about the nature of God that isn't clearly seen until we get to the Gospels. Sometimes the, promise are explicit, sometimes the promises are explicitly about Jesus. So when you find promises in the Old Testament, ask yourself, how did Jesus fulfill this? Or how does the gospel help us understand this promise? So person, pattern, problem, promise. This is the filter I use when I study the Old Testament. This is my personal, this is mine. I actually, you know, did this. And, and this is something that has helped me a lot. And maybe it will help you trying to see that the gospel is found in every story. But in closing, let me say this. Um, When I say that the gospel is found in every story, it actually isn't only true of the Bible. 
It's actually true, I believe, of literally every story. Every story. Those of you that like to read fiction, write fiction, uh, watch movies, watch TV shows, there's plots, there's developments, there's stories. But ultimately, I wrote down, and I'd be interested to hear if you have any contributions to this, not right now, but later. Uh, I wrote down nine things that I think are timeless story narratives. That you name a single movie, and, and we can probably find one of these themes in that story, okay? So I know we got some writers here in our midst, so if you think of anything else, here's, here's, here's the nine I wrote down. The most prominent popular storylines in movies and stories. Number one, good triumphs over evil. I mean, that is Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's as one example. The Hobbit, you know, oh, that's the same one. I should give more examples. But you, you, <laughs> you know what I mean. Good finds a way to triumph over evil. Isn't that a storyline that you see in Disney movies and over and over, right? Number two, unexpected victory, the underdog. We're suckers for an underdog movie. You put an underdog movie on the screen and America's like, I gotta be there. I gotta watch it. There, there's something about that story. Number three, finding, our true, finding or rediscovering our true identity, the Bourne movies. All of those movies, actually a lot of the superhero movies are about people really understanding who they really are. That's a, that's a major storyline. Number four, the storyline of returning home. Getting from where you are to back home. I remember growing up, we watched Homeward Bound with the dogs and the cats over and over and over. So how many movies are about that? People finding their way home, whether it's their literal geographical home or it's a place of rest. They're looking for home. Number five, stories of rescue. Somebody is going to rescue somebody. The prince is going to sweep in and rescue the princess. The firefighter is going to rescue the people in the building. Number, seven, number six, did I say six already? No. Number six, searching for what will fill your heart in life. Movies and stories about people who are searching to find something that will fill their hearts and their lives. Number seven, stories of personal redemption. You, you grabbed yourself by the bootstraps and you pulled yourself up and you dug yourself out of the mess that you made. And we love that. We're actually a very forgiving society, uh, generally speaking, not at first and not on social media, but eventually over, over time, we actually are very forgiving of people. You know, Tiger Woods, who made a mess out of his life, I was, now if he fails to make a cut of a tournament, it's a bigger story than somebody actually winning the tournament. Why? Because something is American about us actually, even whatever questions we have about his past, we sort of kind of like the, un, we kind of like the redemption story. Somebody to come back and make it right. Number eight, this is similar to the identity one, but becoming who you were created to be. That's another big story. You know, becoming who you're, the story, uh, the recent movie Tangled of Rapunzel, who was created to be the daughter of a king and a queen, but she was stolen. At the end of the story, she gets to be who she was created to be. We love that. And then lastly, and this is pretty much the umbrella under which most romantic comedies would fit, is the storyline of someone fully knowing you and still loving you. Fully knowing you and still loving you. And I don't have the time to sit here and explain why all nine of those are gospel threads, but I think you get it. I think you get it. Every single one of those storylines is about the God. The gospel is in there. This is what the gospel is, that good triumphs over evil, that is unexpected victory at the cross, that in Christ we find our true identity, that through Christ we can return home to the Father, that, he, that he's come to rescue us, that in him we find what we've been searching for that would fill our hearts and our lives, that we can be redeemed through his work on our behalf, that in him we can become who we were created to be, and that in him we can be fully known and fully accepted. That's the gospel. The gospel is found in every 
story. And when you start to see art this way, it changes the way you watch movies. And all of a sudden, you'll find yourself getting emotional in movies, not because of the storyline per se, but because somehow the Spirit is using it to quicken your heart to, hey, that's the gospel. The gospel is found in every story. And I want to show you a clip from the recent Disney movie, Moana. And in Moana, uh, I don't need to explain this clip very much, but I just, I want you to listen as best you can. I'm going to ask Rick to make sure we can hear it as best we can. Uh, and there's a big scary monster at the beginning, so brace yourself. But uh, I, I want you to listen as close as you can to what she sings to this evil being and how it changes this evil being. This is powerful. This is the gospel. Let her come to me. Here's what she's saying, in case you couldn't hear it. I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are, who you truly are. Now, when you watch that clip, you might be like, well, that, that big bad guy, that's obviously the devil. I mean, that guy's obviously a demon or a de-. No, that's you and me. Enemies of God, burning up with selfishness, hatred, lost identity, and we're running angrily to attack the only one who can actually help us. 
And God begins to say to us, I've crossed the horizon to find you. I've stolen the heart from inside you, but that's not who you are. I know who you are. And in that moment, you saw what happened. All the hardness breaks off. And what's underneath? Life begins to flower and fruit and trees. That's a snapshot of, that's a snapshot of conversion. You're, you, you are an enemy of God, but through the power of the gospel, he restores to you your identity so that you can live and have life and bring life to the world around you. That's one example. I could give you a, a dozen more of, and they seem to be all Disney movies because that's all I watch now with my girls around, but, <laughs> but lots, lots of other movies too. The gospel is found in every story. And this morning, we're going to take communion together. And it's a beautiful morning to do this because communion tells a story. and invites us into the story uh, of a God who came and shed his blood and let his body be broken. So let's bow our heads together. And I'm going to ask those who are receiving the communion to come forward at this time and prepare so that we can receive together.